Um, first of all, I'd like to point out that I have put our website up on the board here. If you want to know more about OSU WID, you go to the website and you'll see something that looks like that. And we have several pages, one of which talks about who are the, the committee members and gives our contact information, and another explains what OSU WID is. This is our 22nd year of activities at Ohio State, and yet we are an ad hoc group. Um, and another page will uh, show you what our schedule of events has been for this year. We have one more event coming up, and I'd like to invite you all to it. That will be on May 9th. Patricia Richards from the University of Georgia will be here speaking about good women and bad Indians, constructing and resisting the gendered Mapuche subject in post-dictatorship Chile. So that will be interesting. Now I have the great pleasure of introducing, sorry, introducing Nadia Alali. And Nadia is half Iraqi and half German. She's in residence in London. She's senior lecturer in social anthropology at the Institute of Arab and Islamic Studies at the University of Exeter. She's also a founding member of ACT Together, Women's Action on Iraq. ACT Together is a London-based group of Iraqi and British women raising consciousness about the effect of war and occupation on women and gender relations in Iraq. Her publications include Secularism, Gender, and the State in the Middle East, a book published by Cambridge University Press in 2000, and an edited volume, New Approaches to Migration, published by Routledge in 2002, as well as numerous book chapters and journal articles. Her most recent book, just published, is A Modern History of Iraqi Women, called Iraqi Women, Untold Stories from 1948 to the Present, um, published by, by Zed Press. Now, following the talk in the atrium, Barnes & Noble will have set up a sale of books. We managed to get 20 copies because it hasn't been released for distribution in the U.S. yet. And you will have Nadia here who can sign the copy that you get from Barnes & Noble. Um, I'd like to also thank today our co-sponsors for this talk, who include the Middle East Studies Center and the Department of Near Eastern Languages and Cultures. So with great pleasure, I give you Nadia Al-Ali, who is speaking on Iraqi women between dictatorships, wars, sanctions, and occupation. Thank you. Well, thank you very much, Kathy, and thank you very much, um for organizing this, the Mershon Center and the study for uh, the Women's Studies Center. Um, before I'm going to tell you uh, in greater detail about Iraqi women, the history of Iraqi women, I just want to tell you a little bit about the book. I was actually um, approached in, by the end of 2003, a few months after uh, the downfall of the previous regime of Iraq. I was approached by a publisher to write about Iraqi women right now, I mean, after the fall of the regime. And I thought about it for a while, and of course I was quite flattered that I'd been approached to do this, but I refused because I felt it is not possible to write about the current situation before providing some historical context. And this is particularly the case because um, in terms of histories uh, of Iraq, all the histories are sort of top-down histories, you know, histories of coups, political leaders, political parties, but no social histories and certainly no social histories from a woman's perspective. 
And I think if you now hear about Iraqi women, and I, I know that everyone in the room has ideas about Iraqi women because you've read something in the newspaper, you've seen some images on television, I think it's all too easy that you could interpret the situation as, well, this is just another Muslim country oppressing its women. And what I'm trying to show in my book and in, in, you know, when I sort of talk to people is that Islam and culture has played a very, very minor role in determining gender ideologies and gender relations in Iraq until now. I mean, now it is playing a more important role. And one of the ironies of what we're seeing now is that is this government, the American government and the British government, that is actually facilitating Islamist, conservative Islamist forces to have much greater power in Iraq and to really push women back in. Now, um, I always get very suspicious when people say, well, Iraqi women think, Iraqi women want, and often I'm asked, well, you know, what do Iraqi women want? Now, imagine if I were to ask you, what do American women want? I mean, it's very important to stress that Iraqi women are not a homogeneous ent entity. But, again, when looking at the history, it is important to point out that historically it wasn't so much or it wasn't only whether a woman was Shia or Sunni or Kurd or Arab or Christian or Jew as now is sort of the big issue. In the past it had much more to do with social class, you know, whether a woman was a middle class woman living in an urban area or whether a woman was living in the countryside, uh, whether a woman was, you know, part of a specific profession, uh, what kind of political orientation she had and Political orientations, political tendencies, historically cut across ethnic and religious affiliations. So, for instance, the Iraqi Communist Party, which was the largest political party in the 40s and 50s in Iraq, had Iraqis of all religious and ethnic convictions, Iraqi Jews, Iraqi Christians, Shia, Sunni, Kurds, right? or yeah, Arab nationalists. Um, so it is only very recently that we see the sectarian and religious elements playing a more important role. Now, let me um, tell you a little bit about the period before the Ba'ath regime. You know, the Ba'ath regime with Saddam Hussein came into power in 1968. But before that, um, you had, I mean, Iraq, I can't go really much back and into great detail, but just to let you know that at some point, um, in the early 20th century, Iraq was under um, British uh, colonial uh, rule, and then it, it, it was one of the mandate countries, and uh, the British installed a king, right? They brought a king, so Iraq was a monarchy. And I'm starting my book in 1948. Some people ask, well, why, why 1948? But 1948 marks the period when the revolutionary movement, the movement against the monarchy and against British influence really started to gain momentum. Many of the older women I interviewed who, who were in their 70s remember the time when they were students in the 40s and they went out on the street to demonstrate against the monarchy and against British influence. Um, Iraq, uh, prior to the revolution in 1958, was a very secular society. Right? I mean, religion did not play a very important role. Yes, some people might have been believing, Christians or Muslims or Jews, uh, people might have been practicing, but in terms of politics, it did not play a significant role. Um, it was a very uh, a society that was really very much divided along class lines. 
The women I talked to were mainly educated middle-class women. So they had the privilege of an education. They had privilege of being part of the public sphere. The vast majority of the population prior to the revolution uh, did not ho have those privileges. Um, and especially women in the countryside, the urban poor, did not have access to education. Uh, in the late 40s and the 50s, uh, women's movement started to gain momentum in Iraq, the Iraqi Women's League, and at some point it had 40,000 members. And the Iraqi Women's League was closely affiliated to the Communist Party, but it also it became more and more independent, and many of the members were not affiliated to any political party. And um, they were very instrumental in trying to gain greater rights for women in terms of access to education, access to health care, political participation, and so on. I, uh, ah. It's also important to know that when the revolution actually happened in 1958, uh, that this Iraqi Women's League was very much involved in drafting the new constitution, speaking about the constitution later again with the current context. But at the time when the constitution was drafted in 1959, it had the most progressive personal status law in the whole region. Now, I, I think I need to give you a little bit of background here. In many Muslim societies, you have a situation where most of the laws are based on civil codes. Like, for instance, in Egypt, most of the labor laws and the general laws are based on the Swiss civil code. But the laws that regulate marriage, divorce, child custody, and inheritance are based on a specific interpretation of Islamic law. Now, I know that many of you, when they think Islamic law, Sharia law, you have the idea that it's kind of something, in, you know, a book that you can open up or something sort of codified. It's not. It's very, it comes from many, many different sources, and it's really open to interpretation. So if you have someone progressive, you know, believes in human rights and women's rights, if this person is interpreting Islamic law and sort of codifying law, it's okay. We can actually come up with a good set of laws. But in practice, uh, you often have very, I mean, you often have conservative men who don't really believe in women's rights interpreting law, and then we have a problem. Well, in Iraq, since 1959, there was actually a relatively progressive personal status laws, which meant that, for instance, a man could not just say, I divorced you, I divorced you, I divorced you, and that was it. I mean, a couple actually had to go through a judge, or a man could not just marry another wife. He had to actually go through a judge and explain why he should marry another wife. So in, in sort of relation to other countries, it was relatively progressive. Now, i just show you, because of visually, to have an idea. I mean, this is the, the year when what's called al-Wathba, or the leap, when student demonstrations started. And I particularly like this uh, image because when you look at the banner, it actually speaks about Arab and Kurdish unity at the time. And this is in one of the main streets. And if you look at sort of what women wear, wear you see that some of them wear the more traditional abaya and some of them wear, you know, Western clothes. And this is in 1948. This is another uh, student demonstration in 1948, also in, in Baghdad. And you see, you know, young men and women were part of this. And this uh, is the Iraqi Women's League marching on International Women's Day through Baghdad in 1963. Uh, the women in the front row, I interviewed most of them. And you can imagine how depressed and saddened they are when they see images of Iraqi women today because that's 
you know, no woman could do this um, this day and age. Now, let me now make a big sort of leap, and let's move to the period um, of the Ba'ath regime. There was a, the first coup in 1963, but then the, the second coup in 1968 um, established the power of the Ba'ath regime and, and Saddam Hussein. Now, uh, maybe those uh, in the audience who are a bit older remember the oil crisis in the early 70s. Uh, and the effect it had on the oil-producing countries was that in the aftermath of the oil crisis, oil prices shot up and many countries became very rich. And uh, the Iraqi government at the time opted to deal with this expanding economy and expanding labor market by mobilizing its own human people, its own human resources. This is in contrast to countries like Saudi Arabia or Kuwait, who mainly relied on importing labor from outside. And so the Iraqi government also very much targeted women as part of this mobilization of labor force. So in the 70s, you actually had a sort of state-induced, what you know, in the context of Scandinavian countries, it has been called state feminism, where the state played an active role to promote women's entry into the education sector, into the labor force. Um, this is not in any way to belittle the kind of political oppression that, w that existed. I mean, if you were in political opposition to the regime, you ended up in prison. You ended up being tortured. You ended up being killed. But if you kept your mouth shut, uh, as you know, I, I was speaking to, to many uh, women who were part of the expanding middle class in the 70s, these were the good old days. These were the days of plenty. These were when you know, schools were being built, universities were being built, Every university graduate was granted a job. People were sent abroad on scholarships to Europe, to, to the States. And, you know, the good Iraqi woman at the time, according to the political leadership, was the educated working woman, the woman who would, you know, be side by side with men to modernize the country. And it wasn't just talk, because uh, there was the financial means were available, so the state... Uh, implemented very concrete policies to enable women to do so. There was free childcare, there was free transportation to school or to the workplace, very generous maternity benefits, uh, up to one year full pay. So, you know, actually women could uh, then go out while having families. And during that time, middle classes grew. And I think it is important to stress that, yes, there was violence, there was oppression. <coughs> But I think also people were co-opted. It wasn't, I mean, the, the regime did not just work through violence, but it also managed to co-opt the middle classes through, you know, very generous welfare policies. And, you know, people were able to move into nice big houses and have two cars. And so, again, I mean, if you were quiet and you were not in political opposition, you could have a good life in the 70s, no matter what your sort of ethnic and religious background was. Um, there were no independent organizations of any kind. There were no women's movement or civil society organizations other than those linked to the regime. What there was was the General Federation of Iraqi Women. And before I did the research for my book, I always thought that this federation was just the female branch of the Ba'ath Party. And in many ways it was. It was basically a vehicle to implement the modernist developmental policies of the state where women are concerned. But I, when I looked more carefully at some of the correspondence or some of the speeches 
of some of the female leaders of the General Federation, I found out that they were actually challenging, at least sort of in the 70s and early 80s, they would challenge Saddam Hussein and the male political leadership and said, well, but you promised us more rights. And in one speech in 1974, Saddam Hussein was speaking in front of 300 women. They had some kind of conference, and he said, Sisters, I'm so sorry. I know that I promised you to be more radical with respect to family rights, and you asked why am I radical with respect to labor laws and land reform and not so much with respect to um, women's rights within the family. I know you're frustrated with me, but believe me, I will work on it. I mean, he was, you know, he was sort of realizing that, um, you know, women wanted more, and, you know, he, he was kind of apologetic. Obviously, like many uh, political leaders in Muslim societies, but not just in Muslim societies, he was trying to do this balancing act. And he, he said quite clearly, I don't want to alienate our conservative tribal forces, you know, who might be alienated if I give women more rights within the family. Now, uh, i just uh, show you uh, some images. As part of the state feminism, the government and modernizing attempts, the government in the late uh, 70s issued a law that basically stipulated that all male and female between 15, between the ages of 15 and 65 had to undergo a literacy program if they didn't know how to read and write. And this was really far-reaching. It reached, I mean, I was surprised. I thought, well, this must be just the main cities, but it really reached the remotest countryside. And this is partly, of course, because it was a dictatorship. It was centralized. It had money. It could oppress women, so it could also sort of, you know, manage things. I'm not uh, in favor of, um, you know, this kind of authoritarianism, but it worked in terms of uh, implementing this policy. And women very much benefited from it. So in the 80s, uh, Iraqi women had uh, the highest literacy rate in the whole region. Right? This is another picture. Maybe some of you remember a couple of months ago, uh, about 35 female students died in front of Al-Mustansariya University when one of the many suicide bombs went off. And this is the entrance of Al-Mustansariya University um, in Baghdad in the 70s. Now, as I said, I mean, there was, there was an attempt to revolutionize, modernize the country, but there were limits in terms of women's rights, and it was, uh, yes, again, this division that we find in so many contexts. It's okay to grant women rights when it comes to the so-called public sphere of political participation, education, uh, um, labor force participation. But when it comes to the family, you know, we have to preserve our culture, we have to preserve our values. And so there was this tension. And um, initially, um, the first, I would say, 15 years or so, women still had the courage and the political space to protest and challenge it. But as the regime became more and more dictatorial, that became impossible. Now, let's make a big jump again. The 80s was mainly characterized by the period of war with Iran, from 1980 to 88, uh, eight years of war. I, I can't go into sort of details if you want to ask me later on why, but certainly the idea was that this is going to be an easy victory after the Islamic Revolution in Iran, the perception that the country is in chaos, a big miscalculation. Um, lots of men died uh, on both sides. And um, in any 
warlike situation, I think you might be familiar with the impact uh, on American society during World War II. I mean, when men are fighting, women have to step in. And so in Iraq in the 1980s, I remember visiting Baghdad and you could see women not only in the sort of professions such as nurses, doctors, engineers, uh, you name it, but you could also see women at petrol stations or women truck drivers. I mean, they really had to step in. But there was a shift in state rhetoric. Instead of women just being sort of the working women and, you know, working side by side with men, women became the mothers of the future soldiers, mothers of the future citizens. Actually, women in the Iraqi women in the 80s had to become superwomen because on the one side they had to step in because, you know, most of the men were fighting, so uh, even those who had been working before had to work harder. At the same time, Saddam Hussein in the 80s came out and said, well, every good Iraqi woman should have at least five children. So, you know, I mean, he did not, there was no way to implement that, but there were pressures, and there were pressures, and there were concrete policies. Contraception was widely available in the 70s. Uh, a few years into the Iran-Iraq war, uh, contraception was made illegal. Uh, same with abortion. So there were concrete policies attached to this, uh, to this shift in state rhetoric. Um, yes, and I mean, we're speaking, when we speak about gender, of course, it's not only about, about women, but also the ideology and the, the symbolism around men changed. They were not anymore the partners in the struggle to modernize the country. It, there was a glorification of a specific masculinity, a militarized ma masculinity, man the fighter, man the f soldier, men who are defending the country. And uh, when I look at... Um, I looked at magazines of the time, and you see Iraq being portrayed as a vulnerable female to be protected by uh, Iraqi men. This is, of course, is not unique to Iraq. You've seen that. We see that in so many different contexts of war and conflict. Now, let me move to uh, the most immediate context to the current situation, and that's something that I feel quite passionate about because um, I've, I've really studied very carefully the impact of economic sanctions on Iraqi society. And I feel very frustrated by the fact that this particular period seems to be written out of history. Um, you know, one cannot speak about Iraq and then now. One has to really speak about Iraq and obviously, you know, Saddam Hussein and the dictatorship and sanctions and now. Uh, now, uh, as you might recall, there was invasion of Kuwait on 2nd of August 1990, and then four days afterwards, the most comprehensive sanction system ever imposed on the country for 13 years, right? A few years already, by 1993, according to UNICEF figures, 5,000 children died every month as a result of sanctions, right? Because of malnutrition, because of lack of access to clean water, lack of access to, to medical care. Um, and this is, of course, then also we had a few months after uh, the imposition of sanctions, the Gulf War in January, from January to March 1991, 100,000 people died, 100,000 civilians in addition to about 30,000 um, soldiers. Now, there was lots of destruction and deterioration of the infrastructure, but really the more long-term impact of sanctions was much more devastating than the Gulf War in 1991. Um, in addition, I can't go into great details in terms of the humanitarian crisis, but it was, I mean, on an unprecedented scale. 
But in addition to the humanitarian crisis, Iraq became one, the only country in the world which had actually a steep decline in literacy, especially female literacy. Now imagine if you, your family, you have you know, four children and you have to choose you know, how many meals. You can only have one meal a day and then you, know, you can only buy shoes and clothes maybe for two children. You end up buying the clothes and shoes for the male, for the boys, and send them to school, thinking that, well, they will be the breadwinners. And so many families stopped sending girls to school during the 90s. I mean, these are, these are the poorest of the poor, you know. But before that, that was not an issue. I mean, people could send, everyone could send their, their children. Um, also, of course, education deteriorated. Um, many teachers stopped working because the salaries were actually not enough. To uh, some women told me, some women told me, you know, I couldn't even afford working as a teacher anymore because the money I had to spend just to get to school was more than the money I got as a salary. Right? Um, I just show you one picture. I mean, healthcare was affected really badly, and this affected women uh, in terms of women's re reproductive health, but also, of course, children very much. Um, now, in terms of gender relations, again, it's not so much because Iraq is a Muslim society, but any country that undergoes an economic crisis where you have a really large unemployment rate, historically, cross-culturally, you see that there's often a shift towards greater social conservatism where gender relations are concerned. You know, women should go back home. You know, women's places at home because there's just so few jobs out there, and so, you know, men should have the jobs. But also the, the state did not have the means anymore to provide childcare, for instance, or transportation. So all this, you know, stopped. Um, you, uh, by the 90s, you had a shift in Iraqi society that people became much more religious. You know, they didn't have any way to express themselves politically. They had suffered from wars. They're suffering from dictatorship, from sanctions. You know, people found solace in religion. And Saddam Hussein played on it. I mean, the Iraqi regime was a secular government. It had nothing to do with Islam. He, this was a secular Arab nationalist uh, leader. Um, but in the 90s, he started to portray himself as this Muslim leader. You know, he put, in 1991, put Allah Akbar on the, back, uh, on the flag, Iraqi flag. Uh, when you watch TV in the 90s, you could see Saddam Hussein pray, while in the 80s, he would be riding a white horse holding a gun and uh, you know, wearing military clothes. So the symbolism changed totally. And as part of this trying to, I think he, he sensed that society had shifted and, and of course he had problems in terms of legitimacy. He tried to feed into that and he tried to portray himself as you know, holier and you know, more Muslim. But I think also he was looking outwards. He wanted to get sympathy and support from Muslims internationally, you know, in the fight against Satan. So, you know, he in the 90s really shifted and it, it, attacked, it, it very much affected women because it wasn't just a shift towards greater religiosity, but it was a shift towards greater social conservatism, which was worsened by the fact that um, because there was an economic crisis, because there was large unemployment, and you had a uh, demographic imbalance in the 90s, about 65% women, right? This is because men died during wars. They had been killed uh, by, uh, you know, the regime, and many more men had migrated outside. 
So in the 90s, for the first time that you know, I remember visiting Iraq, you could see lots of Iraqi women begging on the street. That was, I'd never seen that before. But also, you know, some women, as the only way to cope, they turned towards prostitution. And, I mean, I can't put statistics onto it, but I know that the impact on society was really great. I spoke to lots of young women who told me, you know, I was so upset. My mother, when she was young, when she was a teenager, or she went to university in the 60s or 70s, she could wear what she wanted to wear. She could go out. She could go to university. She could hang out with her friends. I couldn't do that. You know, in the 90s, when I used to go to university, my father would say, well, you really shouldn't wear the jeans because maybe the neighbor thinks badly. You shouldn't go out on, your, on the street alone. There was this, this big, uh, you know, concern about women's reputation, given the fact that there was an increase in prostitution. So this really had an effect on women's dress codes and women's mobility. Now, all this sounds bad, but... Um, I tell you, you know, people, and that's for me the saddest thing, only four years after the fall of the regime, people who I now suffered personally from Saddam Hussein, people who suffered from sanctions, from wars, now tell me it was better then than it is now, right? And that in no way tells you that it was any good before because it wasn't, but it just shows you how bad it is. And it's particularly bad for women. I mean, I think that women are the biggest loser in what we see happening um, in Iraq. Now, security, lack of security. I know this center is concerned with security. I think security, this word, cannot in any way explain the level of violence and chaos and horror that people are facing. It's far too nice of a word. Um, in terms of um, infrastructure, there was a problem during sanctions, it's worse now. You know, people have maybe two hours of electricity a day. This is a country, I, I don't understand Fahrenheit, I think in Celsius. In the summer, it gets up to 55, 60 degrees Celsius, right? Hot. If you don't have electricity, no air conditioning, not access to clean water, no adequate health care. Violence, I will tell you more about violence in a minute. Then I described a shift towards greater social conservatism. This was liberal times in comparison to what we're seeing now. I mean, the irony for me is that under the auspices of the American and British government, you have a Taliban-like regime now uh, in Iraq, and women are uh, suffering from you know, measures um, and um, laws and uh, actions that are very, very reminiscent of uh, the Taliban, how they treated women in Afghanistan. Every political party involved is instrumentalizing women. Your government here and the British government are partly there to liberate women. It's not as central as it was in Afghanistan, but it has been part of the rhetoric, right? Um, the elected political parties, who are mainly Islamist in nature, Shia Islamist parties, want to break from the previous regime, right? The previous regime, although it changed in the 90s, it's largely perceived to be secular. So there is a shift, and women are very much used to mark this shift. Again, it's not unique to Muslim societies, but when you have conflict, when you have tension, women are always used as well, our women are this and your women are that. Our women are dressed this way, your women are dressed that way. Our women are educated, your women are not. And this is happening as well in the current context. Then you have the various um, 
constituencies and groups, extremist groups that are fighting the occupation, the resistance, insurgents, terrorists, they're using women also to say, well, they want to liberate women, we want to maintain our authentic culture, and we are fighting imperialism also by, you know, showing them that how our women are very different from your women. Okay? And women are caught up between all these different uh, ways they're being instrumentalized. Now, in terms of everyday lives, um, many women and girls are forced to stay at home now. They're too scared to go out, right? Uh, there is, um, you know, imagine if you only have two hours of electricity in terms of just keeping things running, you know, feeding your children, uh, you know, getting food ready, um, cleaning. I mean, this, this is now has become a major undertaking. Um, people have to queue for everything, water, food, petrol, yeah, in the land of oil. People queue for petrol. I just actually returned from Iraqi Kurdistan, and I thought, well, things must be much better there because they have been autonomous since 1991. There's not that level of violence. But we also, I saw two hours of electricity, and on a Friday, no, sorry, on a Saturday, which is the first day of the week there, I mean, I counted 102 cars who were queuing at the petrol station to get their ration of, of petrol, right? I mean, this is, imagine if you had to do this. Right? And this is, you know, the country where all comes from. Schools and universities, well, they are open. Sporadically, they have to close down. But I'm in close contact with some university professors in Baghdad. <coughs> Uh, between uh, last uh, year, the university opened beginning of October and met a professor of political science, uh, Professor Saad Jawad, beginning of December. He said he was able to teach twice during this period because either the university was shut down, there were roadblocks, there were curfews, he just couldn't reach the university, right? And this is in addition to the fact that academics are actually targeted. About 400 academics have been killed since 2003. Um, Yes, and if you're a woman, you are, you are certainly a target, especially, you know, professional woman, academic, activist. So many have received death threats, so many have left the country, and many have been killed. Now, just let me sort of unpack a little bit when I speak about violence. Of course, everyone right now is a target for violence, whether you're man or woman, young or old, okay? But there's also gender-specific violence. And it comes from all sides. American and British troops, there are lots of now documented evidence that they are verbally and physically harassing Iraqi women, doing house searches at checkpoints. Women have been tortured and sexually abused in prisons. You all must have heard about the most sensation sensationalized case of young Abir, the 15-year-old um, girl. But there are many Abirs in, in Iraq. You just haven't heard of them. Now, having said that, you know, that many women tell me, well, this is not our main problem right now. It's one of our many problems. Also, okay, I should say that um, women are also uh, targeted in terms of random shootings. Um, a, a friend of mine lost, well, a friend of a friend lost four of her five children and a husband just driving a car. And... Um, you know, an American soldier, you know, who didn't know who it was, just shot, started shooting them, right? And then, of course, there's aerial bombardment, and civilians are killed also randomly uh, through aerial bombardment. 
Then you have the various Islamist groups. I, I distinguish between militias, militias who are linked to political parties, such as the Badr Brigade, that is linked to the Supreme Council of the Islamic Revolution, or the Mahdi Army. They are terrorizing neighborhoods, they are terrorizing women. In a very similar way as the various insurgent groups, who are mainly Sunni in character, who are fighting the government and the occupation, uh, very similar in terms of the way they treat women. You know, initially sort of giving out leaflets in local neighborhoods, you should wear hijab, you should wear Islamic dress, you should cover yourself. In the second instance, you should not go to university and sit in the same room with male students. Then you should not go to work. You should not drive a car. You should not go out. Step by step, step it's getting worse and worse. Uh, and not only sort of verbally threatening, but I mean killing, killing uh, women, you know, if they disobey. Criminal gangs. Iraq is full of criminal gangs, mafia type networks. You hear every time a foreign journalist gets kidnapped. I don't think you, you, you're aware of the fact that today, actually, I saw in USA Today a very good article about one of the many kidnappings, but there's no middle-class family that did not have at least one member of the family kidnapped, right? Initially, it was for ransom, right? And then when you would come up with the money, I had one of my cousins, a 14-year-old boy, was kidnapped for a week, and they sort of, you know, asked for $15,000, and my uncle said, well, do you think I would still be in this country if I had this money? And it was like they left a mobile number. I mean, it's like they're really cool. You know, it, it's, they know they don't have anything to worry about. No one is following them. So for a week, they were negotiating, and they negotiated down to $5,000 and a car. And then he was released. Unfortunately, now it's become much more sinister than that. Um, you know, people give the ransom, and then they still kill the victims. Or they just, you know, kidnap them to abuse them, to torture them. And women are, in this context, have been sexually abused, they have been raped. There are mafia-type gangs that now uh, specialize in trafficking women outside, out of the country to sell them into prostitution. And you know, some of the women who might have survived being imprisoned by American soldiers and abused in prison, or might have survived being kidnapped, if they happen to come from a conservative tribal background, and the family knows or suspects that this has happened, they actually might be killed by their own families once they're released. There are now young women sitting in Iraqi prisons because the police doesn't know what to do with them because they're worried that when they release them that they might be killed by their own family. And then, of course, last but not least is the increasing sectarian violence that we've seen worsening over the last couple of years. And uh, I assume that many of you have questions about that, and I can say a little bit if during the, quest, um, the discussion period. Um, now, I should say that things did not always look so bleak. I mean, initially, after you know, the first period of chaos and lawlessness and the immediate aftermath of the fall of the regime, you know, remember the looting of the museum, the looting of the hospitals, looting of schools, once that settled down a bit, Actually, the first people to sort of come together and try to deal with the mess were women. You know, women went into local hospitals and local schools trying to clean them up. Uh, women came together as doctors to provide free health care, as lawyers to provide free legal aid. And they also started to mobilize politically. Um, you know, women asked for 40% representation 
They said, you know, we are the majority of the Iraqi population and we should have 40% representation in all, you know, in parliament, in all ministries. Um, well, uh, when uh, they approached um, Ambassador Bremer at the time, uh, who was, you know, leading the coalition provisional authority, uh, he told them, well, we don't do quotas. But uh, the uh, Iraqi women sort of pressured, uh, put lots of pressure on Bremer and also Iraqi politicians, and at the end they got a 25% quota enshrined in the transitional administrative law and then later on in the Iraqi constitution. They also um, started to mobilize around the personal status code because the Iraqi governing council that was appointed by the Americans at the time uh, tried in December of 19... Um, 2003 tried to abolish the existing personal status code. I explained to you that this was a progressive set of laws. Uh, at, at the time it was Article 137. It didn't get through, but we now have it in the form of Article 41 in the current Constitution, which basically states that instead of one unified, codified set of laws, every religious and ethnic group can follow its its own set of laws. Okay, it sounds maybe, you know, wonderful, you know, religious freedom, you know, freedom for all, but actually in practice it's really dangerous. It means there are no safeguards whatsoever for a very crazy person who does not believe in women's rights at all to interpret it. No safeguards whatsoever. Plus, you know, in the past, Iraqi society, although there were tensions, but there were also lots of mixed marriages. And that was possible because there was one set of laws that applied to everyone. Right now, in the way it is stipulated in the Constitution, it would not be possible because you would have these you know, different fragments um, following the specific laws, which, in effect, would create even greater sectarian divisions. Um, more recently, women started to focus on uh, sectarianism and trying to work across sectarian religious and ethnic lines and say, you know, this, this is crazy, you know, we, we don't want to be part of it, and, and trying to work across as women. I'll just show you a few pictures here. Um, demonstration um, in 2004 when this was still possible. This is not possible anymore. I mean, women can't do this anymore, right? They can't go out on the street and, and, and um, demonstrate anymore. Just uh, sort of before finishing up, tell you a little bit about the role of the diaspora. Because of the fact that the Iraqi diaspora, I mean people who spend 30, 40 years outside, they have played a very significant role in the existing Iraqi government. Uh, and there's lots of resentment towards that. You know, who are those people who after 40 years come back and tell us what to do? You know, they were not there when we suffered. And um, I looked at the way, you know, lots of women I spoke to in 2003, 2004, women in Detroit, in San Diego, in London, in Amman, said, oh, now I want to go back and I want to help Iraqi women and I, I have been educated in the States or in Britain and I have skills and I want to go and help. Yeah, but the problem was many went back with a very patronizing attitude. And that was not very well received. I mean, I spoke to women who, you know, had always lived in Iraq. I said, who are they? You know, they were going to, to tell us. They, they kept saying this, oh, you, you don't, just don't know. You have no idea. Um, I should not generalize because there were some women who went back and were willing to sort of listen and not went there for positions or for money. And they 
have managed to gain respect, but the vast majority came back even before the escalation of violence because they felt they're not, not welcome. And I understood why they were not welcome because they had, I think they were quite um, patronizing. Now, there is, of course, a problem, and I'm facing this problem all the time. I mean, living in London, worrying about women's rights inside of Iraq, and not just women's rights, I mean, the general state of violence and people, human rights. And but when you have an occupation, and when you have, you know, President Bush saying um, he's doing something for women's rights, and you're sitting in London and speaking about women's rights, you're actually risking to create an even greater backlash for women's rights. Um, this is unfortunate in many Muslim societies where there's a sort of a perception, well, this is what the West wants us to do. People who, under different circumstances, would be quite open and sympathetic and supportive you know, about the idea of women's education, women's labor force participation, all the good things. But because there's now this really sort of this knee-jerk reaction against, you know, these people who are occupying our country, uh, women are losing out, and this is sort of the first thing that is being sacrificed. Um, this is uh, just a picture of one of the few women who stuck it out, Maysunda Maluji. She was actually Deputy Minister of Culture, and she's very, very active in the women's movement. She's one of the women who's in Parliament right now who's really sticking out her neck for women's rights. Well, I actually feel that one should not use the term reconstruction in the context of Iraq. There's no reconstruction happening. I don't know where the $13 um, billion dollars went, but certainly not into building schools or hospitals. Um, and, you know, what I see is uh, destruction, ongoing destruction, violence, corruption on an unprecedented scale, corruption by Iraqi politicians, by American companies, coalition provision authorities. I think this is one of the, I think, big corruption scandals of the 21st century or, you know, in human history. Uh, where did the $13 billion go? Uh, I'm, as I said, I mean, everyone is instrumentalizing women's rights. People are speaking about women's rights, but there's this big gap between rhetoric and practice. Uh, and um, really what I see uh, happening is that in the name of, you know, democracy and liberating Iraq, there has been a situation where Islamist conservative forces have gained control or are gaining control. Of course, they're fighting and they're not homogeneous either, but that in terms of women, I think this will have long-term implications. And because it was so depressing, I thought I sort of stop on a and on a sort of lighter note. Thank you. I know yeah. that some of you will be getting up and leaving because you have classes at one thirty, but we would like to um, take maybe 10, 15 minutes, Nadia, if you sure. feel up to it, yeah, to please. answer some questions. Okay. <laughs> yes, please. Sanctions are often tried as an alternative to military action. We could use it in Zimbabwe as an example. We haven't enforced sanctions like we did against the yeah. But what is your feeling about the political use of sanctions? 
Well, I mean, um, lots of people argued, you know, and worked in South Africa, and there are certain contexts. And I, I do believe one really needs to differentiate. Not all sanctions are the same. This was not sort of a mild form of sanctions that you find in many contexts. This was a, like a medieval siege. It was a blockade, right? And that is a form of warfare, right? If, if you create a situation where 5,000 children die every month, that's a form of warfare, right? Now, there was talk towards the end, there was talk of smart sanctions, right? Um, that, you know, what has been implemented for 13 years were stupid sanctions, and now we're coming up with smart sanctions. Well, I mean, I, of course, the, when you are against war, and if you're against that kind of sanctions, you have to come up with some kind of alternative, obviously. Um, there, I think sanctions in the form of freezing uh, assets of the government, uh, you know, the Iraqi government, are brought. I mean, there are millions and millions of money was abroad. Sanctions in terms of preventing uh, Iraqi political leaders from sort of leaving the country. Sanctions in terms of arms and, uh, you know, lots of countries before and during the sanctions time, you know, still tried to get arms into Iraq. There was lots of smuggling going on. Um, these kind of sanctions, yes, right, but to prevent people from having access to food and medicine, that cannot be good. Of course, then people argue, well, but that's not the sanctions, that's the government. But who argued that the government was a good government who had the good of its people in mind? I mean, that, that's the given, right? We know we're dealing with a horrible dictator, so we can't expect the dictator to try to do good for his people, right? But why, because while the sanctions were going on, the government wasn't suffering. They were enriching themselves through smuggling. Um, but it was the Iraqi population. So, but I would say that uh, I would not write sanctions off just like that, but we n need to look more carefully what kind of sanctions for which kind of situation. Yes, please. Yeah, no, it's, I think the first question is it's very good, <laughs> and um, it's, it's a fair question. And as I started out, um, you know, different Iraqi women dif think different things. Um, I know that especially the Mahdi army, which is the army, uh, the militia related to Muqtada al-Sadr, uh, who are controlling areas like Sadr city, the Shia slum in Baghdad, are quite popular because they actually provide welfare 
you know, they come in and they bring rice and they bring tea where the state fails. And they are right now uh, providing the only security. So women are quite willing to submit to any kind of rule or regulation because it's not so important what you wear if you can feed your children and, and survive. But there are also there's a range of, of these kind of uh, forces. Um, I mean, also among some of the Sunni Islamist uh, groups, on a sort of local level, they provide some kind of services and, and welfare. Um, but within that, you also have elements that uh, are just kind of, you know, crazily trying to create a havoc and assert their, their authority and their masculinity. So even, I think, when you speak about the specific groups and militias, there are differences within, and people, you know, there are certain elements that people feel, well, we don't particularly like them, but they're the only ones who are providing this for us. And um, there are some women, of course, who are also convinced that this is the right way to go. Yeah? Um, now, in terms of um, the future, yeah, that's a difficult bit. I mean, until, until a year ago, I was always able to end on some kind of positive note, right? And I find it really difficult to find something positive to say. And although I do feel that ending the occupation has to be part of the solution, I'm under no illusion that things will be fine when the occupation ends, right? I also think, don't think that the uh, American or British troops are in control of anything, right? Not only are they not preventing a civil war, we, I, I mean, it's a matter of definition. For me, it's, there's already a civil war going on. And it's not only that they're preventing it, but they're facilitating some elements to actually get at the others. I mean, especially the, the Shia militia linked to the political parties and the, also the Kurdish Peshmerga. I mean, I don't like to speak about my background, but my family uh, in Baghdad is Shia, but I understand why the Sunnis feel left out. And if I were Sunni there, I would also feel this is not, you know, this is not a unified army, it's not a unified police. And um, American soldiers are facilitating that. I mean, there are, you know, I, I, I've seen you know, I've seen images where they sort of stood by and laughed as Shia were beating up Sunnis, right? Now, in a way, I feel in terms of women, occupation has become irrelevant, whether they're there or not, right? Uh, in terms of women, I think we are, we are going to see some form of Islamic state, right? If it means the end of violence, if there can be some kind of consensus, it's not the worst outcome for me. I very much believe that in secularism, I believe in the separation between religion and state. But if it takes some kind of Islamic state like Iran to you know, create some stop ending of the violence, that's what we have to do. Right? Uh, but I, I suspect that in terms of women and women's rights, the next decade is going to be very bleak. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Hmm. 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 
Well, 25% is enshrined in, in the Constitution now, right? That means you have 25% of Parliament are women. Um, I think that comes to 67 right now. Out of these 67, there are only five women who are actively opening up their mouths <laughs> and uh, standing up for women, right? The rest of the women are actually um, the sisters, daughters, wives of male political leaders with no political experience whatsoever, um, not having any political views, or if they have, they don't express them. Hmm? So that's bad, right? But if we didn't have the quota, if we didn't have any of those in Parliament, not the five who opened the mouse, not the 62, and even the, those who are there, I heard from some of the other women who are sort of have political experience that they start to, you know, express themselves, they start to speak out. So although I don't think it's ideal, and I know that some of the political parties had to search hard to find any woman who volunteered, who on earth wants to volunteer to be part of the Iraqi parliament now? Yeah, I mean, whether you're man or woman, you're crazy to do that. Uh, so it, and it was really difficult to find them. But I think in a situation where it's very clear that if that wouldn't happen, there wouldn't be any women right now, it's good to have this presence. And I, I do believe that as time goes by, they will develop a political consciousness and they start to engage in dialogue. And, you know, if you have, let's say, 70% uh, conservative Islamists in uh, parliament, let them, there be 25% of them women. And we know that uh, throughout the Muslim world, throughout the Middle East, now the main paradigm of struggling for women's rights is from within Islam, right? It's, this is the main framework. You have feminist women's rights activists all over the Muslim world who are making a case for women's rights from within Islam. So I am hopeful that you know, these women will also start to you know, get more interested uh, in this. Uh, yes, please. Yeah. Yes, uh, one of the sanctions are foreign money going to a country. It puts the money in the hands of very few. The interest of the both of these, one of the sanctions, very limited people will have control over resources. Yeah. Let's take the case of Afghanistan. Uh, it's not under sanctions, but the external money which goes, it puts in the hands of the people that want to the regime. And they're using this money to buy loyalties of whether it's exactly, tribes. Exactly, yeah. Uh, is, is the same thing happening that now? The Maniki government, mm. also if you take the, the northern part of Iraq, the Kurdish uh. they are in control of resources. Uh. What are they using those resources for, buying loyalties or not? Yeah, I actually just came back five days ago from Erbil and Suleimania in, in the north, Iraqi Kurdistan, because I'm, my current project I'm focusing on you know, the last chapter of my book, I'm now looking more carefully, well, what is actually happening to women and gender in Iraq? And so I was trying to see, well, what happened to Kurdish women? Because since 1991, this is a semi-autonomous region. And I found that uh, when I spoke to Kurdish women politicians, um, you know, everything is wonderful, and, you know, Iraq, uh, Kurdish women are doing very well, and the Kurdish leadership is helping us morally and financially as well. They are putting money into... Uh, different projects related to women's rights. Now, when I spoke to 
women activists who were part of NGOs that were not part of political parties, I got a very different story, uh, namely that the money basically go in, does go into pockets of people that are related to the political leaders, Barzani or Talabani, the different, uh, the, the KDP and PUK, uh, or people, members of the political parties. If you're not part of a political party, you really have a hard time. And even the, the little thousand dollars that ev um, all, every NGO was supposed to get a thousand dollars a month from the Kurdish government. Last July, there were anti-government demonstrations in Suleimania because people were protesting the fact that they still only have two hours of electricity a day. They were protesting against political corruption. Actually, the Kurdish, the Perishmerga sh shot at uh, demonstrators. Several people died. 350 people were arrested. And some of the local NGOs tried to mediate between the demonstrators and the government, and they tried to get those who were arrested out of prison. The seven NGOs who were involved in that had their $1,000 a month cut. They don't get that money anymore, right? So you have a situation where, yes, there, there is money, there's funding, but it's, it's incredible political corruption. It goes into the pockets of, you know, the family, the people really close to the party. If you work outside of the party, you have to go to the International Republican Institute or the, uh, what is the, National Democratic, whatever. I mean, that's, that's the only choice people have, actually, right now. I mean, many of the NGOs are now funded by American um, kind of, uh, money, where there are also agendas attached to it, <laughs> to say. As different from some of the international NGOs or uh, institutions that are based uh, in this country. Let's take right. just, one, just one more question, and then we have to yeah, give you have Nadia a break. Yeah. Could you tell us a little bit more about sectarianism, mm. the relationship between the rise of sectarianism mm. and the occupation? Mm. Okay. So there are mainly two narratives. One is like the narrative that my father always tells me that Iraq is this lovey-dovey, or was, this lovey-dovey, harmonious, multicultural society where you didn't even know whether your neighbor was Sunni or Shia. And he tells me that because that's the Baghdad he grew up in, in the 40s, 50s, as sort of a middle-class, secular Shia family living in a mixed neighborhood where there was lots of intermarriage, right? And intermarriage across Sunni, Shia, but also Kurds and Arabs, and you had Christian neighbors. But... Then there's the other narrative which basically says, okay, there are these sort of primordial ethnic religious tensions that have character characterized Iraqi history. Now, to my mind, these are sort of both extremes, and the truth is somewhere in between, that, yes, it is true. Um, Iraqi society uh, was a multicultural, multi-religious society, and people lived in mixed neighborhoods, and they intermarried, and uh, certain, the urban areas were quite cosmopolitan as well. But it is also true that um, there was the sort of dominance of a Sunni elite in terms of access to resources, economic resources, political positions, and that if you were not Sunni people, many people felt sort of left out or marginalized a bit. Um, but again, if you're a Shia middle-class family living in Baghdad, you had much more in common with your Sunni middle-class neighbor than the downtrodden Shia in Saddam City, Sadr City now, or in the south, right? It was very much a class issue as well. Uh, Saddam Hussein played on it. Saddam Hussein very much played on these differences. And 
if I were a Kurd, I would also would not want to have anything to do with Iraq. I mean, the Anfal campaign in the 80s, you know, gassing of the Kurdish villages and thousands and thousands of Kurds died. I mean, this is just because you were a Kurd, right? Or the Shia, lots of Shia were deported uh, just before the Iran-Iraq war or during the Iran-Iraq war because allegedly they were of Persian descent instead of Arab descent. I mean, people who always lived in Iraq, you know, for generations, thousands of them were overnight had to just leave the country. And then, of course, after the uprisings in 1991, there were Shia uprisings in the south and in the north. And um, afterwards, Kurds and, and Shia were targeted by the regime. Who played this divide and conquer policy? So there were sectarian ten there were not that's, that's okay, there were no sectarian tensions, but some elements, I mean especially Kurds and Shia, more so than Christians, for example, felt that they had been targeted because of their ethnic or religious background. Okay? Now having said that, I do think that the occupation it didn't have to go this way. I mean, it wasn't inevitable that we can that we see this kind of sectarian violence. I mean, from the very beginning, Iraq was divided up in this really simplistic Sunni-Shia Kurd. You know, without actually looking at other intersections of political affiliation, class, the fact that you have you know mixed areas and and so on. The way the governing council was appointed was very sort of simplistically across these lines. Uh, the way you disband an army of a million men to replace it with an army, mainly of Shia and, and Kurds. And of course, if you're Sunni, you feel uh, left out, right? And um, facilitating some of the more extremist elements, the militias, to gain control. That then, you know, led also to, to, to their dominance. But I have to say, with all this, I mean, I blame the occupation to a great extent, but there there is an element where it's beyond my understanding how, I can understand how a small group of militias or insurgents engage in that violence. But for me, it's really hard to understand that it's now really spilled over to a large part of the population. Right? Not everyone. There are still people who very much resist this. Okay? But, and also you have to remember who is still left in Iraq. Three million people left after 2003. Three million people who left, all people who could somehow afford to mean to, to leave, yeah? Um, educated people. The people who are left behind are mostly not educated, <coughs> uh, you know, have not much to lose, are very poor. And so you get, I mean, for me, really sort of heartbreaking stories of, um, you know, my, my, a, fa a friend of my father called um, his family in Sardar City after another car bomb went off and he was worried about them. He said, you know, are you okay, are you okay? And, and the brother said, yes, we're okay, but there's a big hole in the ground. But don't worry, we're going to fill the hole with Sunnis. Right? And this was, you know, how do you explain this? I mean, intellectually, I can't explain it, you know, nor could I explain when I, I spent some time in Bosnia and I couldn't explain this or what happened in Rwanda. I mean, there are certain things where I feel, yes, you know, really Americans and British could have prevented, they could have done things differently to stir some of these sentiments. But now it has sort of taken up a life on its own and it's this big, like really basic kind of tit-for-tat revenge killings that totally dehumanize the other. I can't explain that. It's beyond me.